0: Good morning, church. You may be a guest today, or you may be uh, just simply have gotten up and drove your car over here and plopped down in the pew, and life is good for you. But for many people this morning, life is challenging. And for our brothers and sisters south of us, and our friends south of us, in Fort City, Colt, places like that, they're experiencing a lot of distraction this morning. A lot of difficulty and hurt we have families that have lost loved ones we have a lot of different activities we have um, just a lot of things that would make it very easy for one or more of us to not focus on what the Lord is, is, is saying to us this morning and the most important thing you and I will do today is worship the Lord you and I were made for that and when you draw your last breath your first activity, uh, beyond that, if you know Jesus, is to worship. You'll see him, you'll be in his presence. And so worship is absolutely vital. And one of the ways that we worship is we, we understand something of who he is and we respond to that. So much of what we read about in Scripture is the Lord revealing something to his people through their circumstances or, or through something else in their life. And it's another occasion to worship. So no matter what's happening to you today, no matter what you're experiencing circumstantially, it is merely another opportunity to trust Him and to worship Him. And so you may be carefree this morning, but many of us, we're not so much carefree, are we? We have a lot of things on our minds, a lot of things on our hearts. We are beginning today a series of nine studies that we're calling life words each summer if you've been with us a while you know that we take june and july and we have groups of people who meet in homes they sign up for this and if if you're still interested in doing this after you hear what I have to say about it come see mike ship down front after service and if there's a place for you he'll help find a place for you but we have these bible study groups that meet during the week and what they're doing is they're taking the message that I'm preaching on Sunday morning and they're discussing it often around another text and they're just taking it a little bit deeper and so we ought to do this naturally we ought to take God's Word whenever it's been taught to us or we hear it preached and we ought to take it deeper but but for June and July we do it on purpose and we call those groups 242 groups and uh, they're just a great opportunity to go deeper in the Word also to form relationships perhaps with people that you haven't known that well and uh, to, uh, to make new friends even in, within the church. And so I want to encourage you to consider that. But for the next couple of months, we're gonna study these nine words. Why are we doing that? Well, typically I've chosen a book of the Bible and we have gone through a two-month study of a book. And uh, last summer we did Judges, before that we did 1 Peter. But this summer it occurred to me uh, several months ago that there are, there are certain words that you and I read in the Bible That we hear people say, sometimes they're words that we sing. And if someone were to come and ask you, what does that word mean? You might find yourself at a loss to really explain it. And so this morning, we're going to take up one of those words. The word is propitiation. It occurs several times. Uh, Literally, that word occurs several times in the Bible, in the New Testament, and uh, we're going to look at each of those occurrences in the New Testament but uh, your translation may translate it differently but we're calling it propitiation he covers your crimes and each week what I want to do is take a word uh, help us understand what that word means think about what that word says about God because it's a word that he inspired that appears in our in our Bible what does this word tell us about God and then In light of the truth of this word, what difference does it make to my life? How does it make a difference in the way that I live? And so this morning our word is propitiation. I think that's worth saying together. Propitiation. You Ready? One, two, three. Propitiation. You're already uh, that much further ahead than the average church member in Arkansas who would not know how to pronounce that word. So... Propitiation, he covers our crimes. When we're guilty, we respond in a variety of ways. Each of us has a a pattern that we might naturally fall into when we feel guilt in our life. A basic reaction, as old as the book of Genesis, is to hide when we feel guilty, to hide our guilt, whatever it was that we did, whatever we said, but to hide that information from someone else. We see that, again, all the way in the Garden of Eden, When Adam sinned, what did he do when God showed up? He hid. And so that's a basic response that many of us have to guilt. Other ways include denying. We deny it, and we defend ourselves. And uh, we try to deal with it that way. Sometimes we pass the blame. Uh, It was the woman thou gavest me. That's what Adam did. You know, we try to pass the blame down the line. It's not all my fault. You've got to understand the whole situation. Uh, sometimes we compare our sin to other people's sin, and, and in that way, minimize our guilt. We look at what somebody else did, and we said, well, that's a lot worse than what I did. And and for people who are religious, that's a very easy trap to fall into when you and I feel guilty. We can become holier than thou. Well, I sin, but I don't sin like those people. I don't do the kinds of things those people do across the street or down the road, because I go to church, and we can develop a holier than thou. I'm holier than you mentality. And that's why sometimes even religious people or Christians can can be handling guilt in a very sad and a wrong way. Sometimes we absorb the guilt and we feel so guilty, we take on all the guilt that we can find in life and we punish ourselves for it. We never imagine that we would be worthy of anything good because we feel so guilty and so we're constantly caring about this mentality of guilt and that I'm not worth anything because of it. In the final analysis, without the gospel, we are in some way or other, we are running from our guilt. We want it to go away and deep down we know it's a problem. Now why is that? Because accountability for our actions is woven into every human mind, every human heart. There's a sense of accountability for our actions. It's in the very fabric of the universe. We know there's a payday someday. Regardless of our religious affiliation, we have some sense that there's accountability waiting out there for me somewhere for the things that I have said and the things I have done. I feel I've violated someone or I've violated something and I'm fearful of those consequences. And so we run from it. Whatever it is that you're looking for as you feel that on the inside, Whatever it is that you desperately need as a solution to this problem of guilt, you will find it in this word propitiation. And so we want to explore it today. It's used in four places in the New Testament. We're going to look at all four instances as we answer three questions. Question number one, what is propitiation? What is propitiation? The first passage I want us to see where this word appears and most English versions of the Bible is found in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. The Bible says, Therefore, in all things, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren. So, this is describing the incarnation of the Son of God. When God became man, why did he do it? This is one of the answers to the question of the incarnation. He had to be made like his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful, And faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people so one of the reasons not the only reason but one of the reasons we believe that God became man is so that he could enter into this role this function of a high priest we're going to talk about what that means to make propitiation for the sins of the people Not symbolically, but in reality. To actually do something because of the sins of the people of God. In ancient times, sacrifices were used to appease angry gods. For the ancient person, the pagan person, and sometimes continuing uh, those who worship many gods today, they live in a very complex, unseen world where gods are jealous of one another, are jealous of the attention you give to one that you might not give to another. And since ancient times, because of that complexity, if I want to be successful in life, I've got to understand how to appease or avert that anger or that jealousy of that God. And so they would make an offering, a a sacrifice, to gain the favor once again of that particular God. And it's an ancient practice, this making of sacrifices to appease the gods. And depending on what you're wanting to accomplish, the greater the sacrifice, the bigger it is, the more significance it is, the more costly it is, the greater the result or impact you can expect from that deity that you worship. And so when you encounter cultures where there's human sacrifice, or child sacrifice, why would they go to such extremes to sacrifice a human life to their God? Because of the belief that the greater the sacrifice, the greater the result. And so, propitiation is this idea of controlling or turning away the anger of a God. So, let me give you this basic definition that we're gonna draw from this morning. Here's the definition. Propitiation is the offering. It is the offering that turns away the wrath provoked by an offense. When you sin, you commit a crime, you create wrath somewhere. In this offering, this wrath that's aimed at you, you give an offering and you avert that wrath. You turn it away from this thing that would destroy you or that would be aimed at you. And so this is the core idea behind the word propitiation. Now even as I say that, you need to understand, if you're a Bible scholar, student, teacher, and you pick up a commentary, you immediately are going to discover there's a great debate surrounding the meaning of this word propitiation. There are scholars who for many decades have reached the conclusion that The Bible is trying to communicate truths too difficult for the human mind to comprehend. And so some of the images, some of the symbols, and some of the ideas that are in the text are not meant to be taken literally. And so because we don't believe in idolatry, because the Old Testament condemns idolatry, because of those things, these particular scholars would say God does not demand a bloody and violent death in order to atone for sin. And so the idea of propitiating wrath of turning that wrath away is a misunderstanding of the text. What it's talking about is another word, expiation. Sounds like supercalifragilistic expiation. Something like that. Expiation expiation is different from propitiation because it doesn't deal with wrath. Expiation says it just deals with sin. Sin is the offense, and what God does is he expiates our sin. Jesus carries it away. He cancels that sin so it no longer has an effect on your relationship with God. God's wrath does not have to be averted. He is love. He's not an angry God. So expiation is only about removing our sin and our guilt. The problem with that is that expiation, just dealing with our sin, is only half of what propitiation means. I think the best way to illustrate that is to draw on the Old Testament the way the writer of Hebrews does in our verse. In the Old Testament, if you go back and read some of those laws that if you're doing your Bible reading at night, it may have caused you to go to sleep. If you read Leviticus 4, if you read Leviticus 5, if you read Leviticus 6, you're going to read about sin offerings and guilt offerings where in the place of you, you substitute an animal that dies in your place for your sin, for your guilt. In Leviticus chapter 16, there was actually one day a year where the entire sin of the nation was atoned for. It was called the Day of Atonement. And on this particular day, the high priest would atone or, as this kind of symbolized here, would make propitiation go through the motions of what it looks like when sin is covered, when sin is atoned for, when the wrath of God is carried out. And the way they would do that, they would have two goats. One goat was called the scapegoat. And the priest would take the scapegoat and lay his hands on that scapegoat and confess the sins of the nation of Israel. Now, I don't know how long that took. If if he literally confessed all the sins, I don't know people wrote them down and said here here are mine but it says he confessed the sins of Israel. That scapegoat was then carried outside the camp and set free, and it went away. It wandered off. What is that picture? That picture's expiation. The carrying away of our sin. Jesus certainly does that. When he died for us on the cross, he took our sins on himself, and by taking our sins on himself, he carries away our sins. That's certainly true. But there was another goat And this other goat also had the sins of Israel confessed over it. That goat was slaughtered. That goat was killed and its blood was used to sprinkle the interior of the Holy of Holies, to to render it free of the sin of Israel. Their guilt, their sin. And so in these two goats you have the full picture of propitiation. Something had to die. Blood was shed, and sins were carried away. And so when you, when you come across that, if you read it in a footnote, you read it in a commentary, just, just remember, and even say it to yourself, there are two goats. My pastor said there's two goats, there's not one. Expiation is the scapegoat. Propitiation is that thing that caused the wrath of God to be satisfied, that caused the punishment your sins deserve to be satisfied. And that was the goat that died. Two goats, not one. So what does it mean? It's an offering that turns away the wrath provoked by an offense. Now we read that verse in Hebrews. But there's another question I want to pose, and it'll take us to another passage of Scripture. What does propitiation tell us about God? What does propitiation tell us about God? I'm reading from Romans chapter 3. And I'm reading from verses 21 or verse 20 down to 26. And um, I love the book of Romans. We have not studied it uh, as a church since I've been here. And if you take time with Romans to study it out, you will have as thorough an understanding of truth as anybody who has studied at a seminary or gotten a doctor's degree in theology. Romans is serious business. Now, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, we are dropping in the middle of a discussion or an argument. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul has said that the wrath of God is being revealed right now against all of the unrighteousness of mankind. That The wrath of God is being revealed right now. Of course, that raises a question. I don't see anybody burned to a crisp, so in what sense is the wrath of God being revealed? Once well, you keep reading through chapter 1, you discover that wrath, the expression of wrath right now, is God letting people do what they want to do, and, and that raises, you know, all these questions you and I have. It seems like people get away with murder, and they do. It seems like there's no accountability in this world, and sometimes there's not. People seem to be getting away with things. God never seems to call their hand. And sometimes it appears that's exactly what's happening. And and what Paul says in Romans 1 is when you see that happening, that's actually an expression of the wrath of God. God just letting people do what they want to do. But what's happening is you get into chapter 2, what you discover is that there's a wrath against that sin that is growing. It's like a warehouse. And when you sin... The wrath of God, we're going to talk about it in a second, is built up against that sin. And you keep sinning, wrath keeps building up. And he describes the storing up of the wrath of God and that one day you will face that wrath unless. And so when you come to chapter 3, he's explaining how is it possible for a person who is not right with God to be accepted by God. How is that possible? In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Justified is one of the words we're going to talk about later. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? In a nutshell, he's saying that you can keep all the rules you want. Keep those rules. Keep keeping those rules. But that is not going to save your soul, and that is not going to gain you forgiveness. All the law does is show you where you've messed up. It's good. It expresses the goodness of God and the character of God, but you and I can't keep it. The last two weeks we've talked about the Holy Spirit and how life in the Spirit is absolutely essential in order to fulfill God's purpose for your life. The Spirit accomplishes in us what all the rules in the world could never accomplish through His leading, through His prompting, through His guiding, through His convicting, through His transformation. And so He's saying rule keeping doesn't work, but through faith in Christ, you can be righteous in the sight of God. He is our righteousness. Well, it goes on and says, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By the way, redemption is another word we're going to look at. Whom God, verse 25, whom God set forth, talking about Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance. God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be Just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The death of Jesus demonstrates something about God. If you look in verse 25, it uses to demonstrate his righteousness. In verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. The fact that Jesus came and he was a propitiation that God set forth is telling us something about God. What does it say? Number one. The death of Jesus demonstrates three things. One, that God is just and will act against every injustice. When we talk about the wrath of God, that's what we're talking about. God is not angry in the sense of a capricious, fly-off-the-handle, arbitrary, bad-tempered, conceited anger, which were all the pagan attributes of their idols. God is not like that. Neither is he like you and me. Where we get angry, we get upset, we get infantile because we don't get our way. God's wrath or anger is not like that. You know, we um, we use propitiation all the time, don't we? With little babies in high chairs who are screaming in restaurants. We try to propitiate their their anxiety. We go up to them and we whisper in their ear, if you'll be quiet, I'll get you the biggest ice cream cone you ever saw. Or we come in with something else, like if you're not quiet, when we get outside, you're going to wish you were. You know? All that is, those are all offerings. <laughs> those are forms of propitiation, trying to avert their anger and wrath. But, but God is not like us. He's, he's not the sinful, resentful, malicious, infantile anger which we find among humans. His wrath is a function of who He is. We've read it before in 1 Peter 1. He says, be holy. Why? Because I am holy. His wrath is a function of who He is. It's a reaction to injustice. When you see something happening that's not right, if there's something in you that says, that's not right, I need to fix that. I need to correct that. In that sense, you are made in the image of God. Because God sees something wrong, and there's something in him that wants to act. To put it right. To stop the wrong. And that is where the wrath of God can be described. If he was not that way, some people say, well, to think of God as angry. To think of God as a God of wrath. uh, That makes him a monstrosity. Listen, it makes him a monstrosity if he looks the other way when serial killers walk. It makes him a monstrosity when people who molest and wound children walk. It makes him a monstrosity when all the sin and corruption in the world, people just get away with it and think they're going to live happy in eternity. That would be the monstrosity if he looked the other way. And so the wrath of God is a function of his holiness. And he doesn't let things go. He will act against every injustice. Number two. The death of Jesus demonstrates that God never lets any wrong go uncorrected. He not only has the impulse to make it right, He is going to make it right. Who He is requires a just result for every wrong. That's the nature of wrath. The right way to respond to sin is to say that sin matters. All sin matters. When I mess up, it matters. It's not inconsequential, there is a consequence. It is wrong and deserving of punishment. God's wrath is a simple way of describing how God reacts to injustice and what's wrong in the universe. There is a great correction in the future that is coming. There is a day coming It's called different names, but it's often referred to simply as the day in the Bible. It is a day of wrath. It is a day of correcting the wrongs. It's a day of putting the universe back the way God originally intended it to be. We wonder why does God allow injustice? He doesn't. There's a fire coming. There's a great correction coming. I may be comforted then Knowing that the abusers of children and serial killers and unjust leaders are going to get what they deserve one day. We love to see bad people in movies get what they deserve. But do I understand that I am not separate from them? That there's no such thing as a small sin? That I am as in much need of deliverance from God's wrath as the worst sinner on the planet? The third thing that the death of Jesus demonstrates is that God himself is the provider of the only offering that could turn away his wrath. He's the provider. It says that whom God set forth as a propitiation. God's the one who does it. There's nothing I can bring to God to turn away that wrath. There's nothing I can do to make myself just in the sight of God, to make myself right in the sight of God. No matter how much good I do, the wrong is there, and the wrath of God is aimed at that wrong. And so, I need an offering, all right? I need an atoning sacrifice, I do. But I can't provide it. That's why it says, whom God set forth as propitiation. He has the solution, and Jesus is that propitiation that turns the wrath of God. So, What is propitiation? It's the offering that turns away the wrath provoked by my offense. What does it tell us about God? It tells us something of his nature, that he is holy and he doesn't let anything slide. He would not be just. If he let one thing slide, he would not be just. He would not be holy. He would not be the kind of God that you would want to love and to worship. The third question I want to pose is this, and this will pick up the last two passages that, where this word appears. Here's the third question. How should propitiation affect the way that I live? Well, this word propitiation occurs twice in the little book of 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, the apostle writes, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins... Not supposed to, but if you do, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the whole world. How should propitiation affect the way that I live? According to this passage, there are two effects that it should have. First, it should cause me To treat sin in my life as my mortal enemy. One of the problems you and I have with the sins that we keep doing is we've never looked at that sin as your mortal enemy. We've never understood the full weight and consequence of that sin. We have made, in our minds, big sins and little sins. We, We have excused our behavior. We've acted like, well, God doesn't care about it. He just sent Jesus to die for me. And, and, and what we don't understand is that there is a wrath and Jesus is standing between me and that wrath. And That little sin is costly. It is costly. The night before Jesus went to the cross, he talks in figurative language about a cup In the Old Testament, there was a cup of wrath that was described. And Jesus said, if there's any way, Father, let this cup pass from me. And that cup was the experience of the wrath of God taking on the consequences that you're not experiencing for your sin. I don't care what happens in your life. You may have the worst kind of life of any person on the planet. Everything that can go wrong may go wrong in your life, but you've never experienced the wrath of God. You think you have problems now. On the cross, in those 400 minutes or so that Jesus was on the cross, he experienced the separation from everything good, everything Wonderful, everything loving, everything sweet, everything precious. He experienced that separation. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he took the cup and he drank it all for your sin, even the little one. It should cause me to treat sin in my life as my mortal enemy. Secondly, propitiation should cause me to never fear his wrath again. He says, I write to you so that you may not sin. Treat sin as a bad thing, as an enemy. It's not a little thing. But at the same time, you shouldn't fear his wrath again. If anyone sins, he says, we have an advocate with the Father. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. I've got someone standing with God. And and what's interesting to me, he says, if anyone sins... He doesn't try to comfort me and says, now look, sin's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, now if anyone sins, what you need to know is you're you're getting better progressively. We're going to talk about sanctification too. Well, you're getting better progressively and you're not what you used to be, so you ought to feel good about that. He doesn't say that. In fact, he doesn't say if anyone sins that you should even think about yourself. Don't even think about your sin. Don't think about... What you've done right, what you've done wrong. The first thing you should do if anyone sins, he says, flee to Christ. Look to him. He is your advocate. He is the one who propitiated the wrath of God, he's the one that turned it away from you. You have an advocate. That's where your mind needs to go. Not, I'll try harder next time. But thank you, Jesus. You have him. I want to um, I want to set up a word picture, and uh, if you'll be patient, in um, in number sixteen, there was a rebellion in the Old Testament. Moses was leading the people of God through the wilderness to the promised land. They refused to go in the promised land, so they wound up wandering the wilderness for forty years. Remember that story. Along the way, there were these rebellions that took place. There was a rebellion of a guy named Korah, and he had some compatriots in his rebellion, and about 250 really influential key leaders in this rebellion. And the end result of the rebellion, they, you know, they were trying to say, Moses, you're not any better than we are. We're just as holy as you. And, and God showed them that was not the case. The ground opened up, swallowed Korah, swallowed his buddies, swallowed up everything they had, and in the 250 that supported him, they did turn to ashes. I mean, it was serious business. The next day, this is what's astounding. The next day, the people of Israel come to Moses, and they said, you've killed some mighty fine people. You shouldn't have done that. And I'm paraphrasing. And God says, would you step back away from them, please? And, and Moses did what he typically does. He falls on his face. You now, when they came to him and opposed him, and said, Moses, you're no better than we are. He didn't argue with him and say, I am better than you. He didn't do any of that. He says he fell on his face. Oh, God. Oh, God. Have mercy. In this particular case, just listen to what happened. So Moses said to Aaron at this moment, these people are in big trouble. Moses said to Aaron, take a censer. that They, they burned incense in this thing and put fire in it from the altar, put incense on it, and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from the Lord. If anybody has any question about how serious the wrath of God is, these people were wrong and God's wrath was on the move. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly, and already the plague had begun among the people. Ultimately, 14,000 people died from it. So he put in the incense and made atonement for the people. And listen to this. And he stood between the dead and the living, so the plague was stopped. He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. That's what Jesus has done for you and me. The wrath of God. You watch watch old westerns, watch old movies, detective shows. When somebody gets away through the woods, they always get out what? The bloodhounds, right? They have this incredible sense of smell, and they're chasing the fugitives through the woods. And, and the wrath of God is like that bloodhound. There is, they are relentless. They don't care what the person's done or not done. The person has to be caught, and they're on the scent of this person who is the criminal. Now, what's interesting, if you watch these movies, they do it different ways, but they, the thing you have to do is, is get rid of the scent, don't you? So what do they do? They jump into a stream, and they start running through the stream. And if they can run far enough upstream or downstream or float downstream, the dogs get there, they lose the scent. Jesus is the stream that you and I jump into when the wrath of God is coming and there's no more scent of sin in your life. The blood of Christ has eradicated the stench of sin in my life and your life. And so when the wrath of God shows up, all he smells is Jesus. He has propitiated the wrath of God in that moment. He has stood between you and the most awesome force in the universe and creation that you and I could ever imagine. He has stood before that on your behalf. There's one more way propitiation should affect the way I live, and this is the last verse. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Propitiation should cause me, here's the third thing, to love others even when they have offended, wounded, or provoked me. You see, we know the love of God. I've got to reject forever this idea that God is after me, that God doesn't love me, because He's the one that sent Jesus to turn away the wrath. He's the one that provided the offering. And so I can never think in terms. God has demonstrated His love towards us, it says in Romans, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came as that offering for you and me, not because we were wonderful people, not because we stood up every day and we said, I love you, Jesus. He came at that time when you and I were in the sin and we liked it and we were indulging ourselves in it and we were having a party in it. God loved you then and sent the offering for you then. Now the point he's making here is this. If God loves me when I was at my worst and before I ever said yes to Jesus and before I ever trusted Christ, if God loved me at my worst, how should I love you? Should I love you only when we're getting along? Should I love you only when you're nice to me? Should I love you only when you straighten up and fly right? Or do I just love you? If that's the way God loved us, he says, how should you love one another? This is literally the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the good news. A lot of times you hear preachers say, you hear me say it, trust Jesus. Trust the sacrifice he made for you on the cross. Your sins were carried to the cross. Peter writes... He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. He took your sins on Himself. And you'll hear preachers say that. That He died for you. He took your sins away. But do you understand the cost? Do you understand what that tells you about who God is? It tells you of His wrath against sin. It tells you how horrible sin is. It tells you how serious sin is that Jesus had to die for it. It also shows you how much He loved you that he would send Jesus to stand between you and the wrath of God. He's the only one who can save you. He's the only one who can rescue you from the consequences of your sins. He is the only one who, when you trust him, can send a power into your life, the Holy Spirit, who can change you from the inside out and make you like him. Now, on this side of heaven, I'm never going to be perfect, but the Holy Spirit, he lives inside me. He leads us. He speaks to us. He changes us. He shows us when we're wrong. He shows us the way that God wants us to live. That is vastly and infinitely superior than trying to read print on a page and do the right thing. Do you know this Jesus? Have you trusted this Jesus who stood in your place? Who took your condemnation? Who took your guilt? He took it all until there was nothing left, and he put it away.